Welcome to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Austin Glidden, and as always, you can find us on social media at, by searching Medium Cool Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That's facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. You can search Medium Cool Pod on Instagram and we'll pop up. And at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter, you can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. Please, of course, like, subscribe, follow, wherever the thing is you should do, wherever you're listening to this, please do it. It's always very helpful. Rate, review, anything you're willing to do. We appreciate it now i know last week i did story time with austin five movies on netflix you should see and i know that i didn't have very much very many stories so i've actually worked that in uh more because i really thought i was gonna have more stories about these movies and then i just like didn't do it last week so this week it's storytelling with austin five movies on hbo max you should see and again please understand uh if you don't have hbo max don't fret you can still watch all, I, like, I think there's only one of them that is only an exclusive to HBO, but I think you can still find it elsewhere if I was if I'm not surprised. Uh, but the rest of them are available for rent or to buy um, straight up like all of these movies are totally worth a straight buy if you can. So I can't stress enough how good the selection on HBO Max is. You know, HBO Max has actually become arguably the most valuable streaming service today and, uh, you know, certainly surpassing Netflix. Uh, in in part due to the quality content that they you know purchased the rights for, but also just the incomparable creative catalog that they had uh, from the start. Whether it's Curb Your Enthusiasm, True Detective, uh, The Sopranos, The Wire, Barry. I mean, they have such a wealth of quality television. It's crazy. But their movies selection is nothing to laugh at. Okay. Um, I mean, they have all kinds of uh, kind of exclusives with uh, companies for newer movies. I was searching their catalog, which is it's pretty crazy. If you go to HBO Max and uh, is at least on the on the web version, and you just click movies, and then you can search like A to Z. So that's what I did, and I just looked through their entire catalog. Holy fuck, they have incredible stuff on here. I mean, like, wildly cool. Like, stuff I would have never, ever, ever thought was on a streaming service that, like that wasn't the Criterion channel, you know? But, man, they I mean, they have all kinds of stuff from Bergman and Fellini and old stuff like that to, like, Batman animated movies to, like, um, kind of obscure shit to, like, Italian neorealism all the way to, like, brand new movies like, I don't know, Birds of Prey or... Uh, you know, the Batman or whatever, you know, like there are tons of things. They have great documentaries, horror movies. I mean, dude, this is a crazy thing. And I would even go as far as to say, even at least temporarily, uh, Netflix, I think just upped their price, at least the one that I do. I think it's like 15 bucks now or something. And that's how much HBO Max is. I'd say if you don't have HBO Max, drop Netflix for a month and just check out HBO Max just to see if that's something you'd be interested in, because they have some killer stuff on here that you could easily fill a month uh, of your time and much, much more uh, just enjoying these things. So anyways, all that to say, uh, they have some really, really great stuff. Uh, but for for the sake of this list, I kind of went with some more personal picks, stuff that really you know stands out to me. And uh, I'm, I'm avoiding movies like The Batman because, you know, I've dedicated an entire episode to it, you know, uh, back on episode 74. And then that also goes for other titles that I dedicated episodes to as well, like Nightmare Alley, Chunking Express, Dune, and so on, right? Uh, I don't know if we actually, I think we did one for Dune, but if we didn't, we at least talked about it in our top 10. So if I've talked about it at any kind of length, I kind of kept it off here. 
Uh, but I, I, I really think HBO Max has something special. Is something special. Has something awesome to offer as a wrestling fan too. I really, really hope that AEW works something out with them so they have a streaming service <laughs> through through uh, HBO Max in part so I don't have to you know subscribe to another streaming service, but also just the exposure it would have for that company. And I love AEW. Anyways, uh, you know, total aside there. But the, the movie selections on here are really great. I have chosen five. I could have easily done a list of 15, okay? But I tried to keep them pretty, uh, pretty diverse. Uh, so, you know, I have one HBO exclusive that I feel like uh, anybody that's not a critic, and even some critic friends that I know uh, don't really know much about this movie, but... Uh, it's like a movie that has like, you know, name actors, a name director, uh, but it was just like an HBO movie. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited to talk about that one. Uh, but anyways, that that movie in particular uh, is going to be fun. And I even have a silent movie on here, a documentary, um, a pretty not obscure, but a, a bizarre kind of movie. And then uh, just one of my all time favorites. So this list is going to be really, really fun to go through. I encourage you to check these out, please, please, please. But I also wanted to talk a little bit, uh, as I have been the past few weeks, about TV, because that's kind of been where my attention is recently. Uh, I've just been consuming a lot of stuff that I missed. Uh, my friend Charlie, who's been on the show, Charlie Eckenbarger, uh, makes fun of me all the time. Yeah, dude, I watched that show when I ask him. You know, He's like, yeah, I watched that show like 10 years ago when it came out, Like, because he's being an asshole. Who the fuck cares when you watch a piece of content? You should be happy I'm watching cool shit. The fuck are you talking about? Anyways, so uh, I hate him. So uh, the, the whole point is this. Uh, I'm, I'm watching a few shows. I brought them up last time. Uh, I think Legion. Uh, now, of course, it's not currently airing, so it's really not fair. But during the years it was airing, I really don't know anything that's better. Comparable, maybe? Maybe. Um, but anything better than Legion? I think Legion is one of the most creative, visually interesting um, just like conceptually fascinating show on TV uh, in a long time, I'll at least say, you know. And of course, there are a few little, um, I don't know, miniseries maybe or a few kind of offshoot series that might be as creative. I can't think of any, though. Really, really great. Uh, but yeah, Legion, um, I'm trying to think what else here. Uh, I, I, I finished Winning Time, that, that uh, the story of the Lakers dynasty thing. And that is uh, that was really really fun to watch. Uh, I I don't know really where it would fall in terms of what I've watched in the last well since I got COVID and I watched like a billion shows. Um, I don't know where that would fall on the list. It'd probably be lower on the list. But the thing is, like, it's awesome, and all the things I've watched are awesome. You know, it's just some of them are literally have become like some of my favorite shows ever, like uh, Peaky Blinders or Baskets or things like that. So, uh, yeah, TV is kind of banging for me right now. I don't really know what to do with it. There's a there's a show, um, Too Old to Die Young. I haven't watched that yet, but that's by Nick Reffin, the guy that did Drive and Bronson um, and, a, you know, a bunch of other stuff. And I, I'm excited to watch that. He did like a whole TV series. That's one I want to get into. Uh, my buddy Thrasher, who I got to have on the show sometime, but he's my best friend. And he, he was texting me. He's like, dude, we just started watching uh, Outer Range, and uh, you should watch it, the one with Josh Brolin, and, and it's a, an it's a Amazon Prime show. And I watched the first episode, very compelling. I, I won't lie. Uh, but I've been watching so many shows that are so not that thing that it's kind of a, it was almost like a, 
not a culture shock, but it was like a, I was almost like it, it was whatever equivalent of a culture shock is whenever you're used to a certain kind of, um, I don't know, uh, umbrella of tone or whatever, or a TV show. I mean, imagine watching something like uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm, and these are very different, but still, you, I think you'll get what I mean. Curb Your Enthusiasm, Arrested Development, Always Sunny in Philadelphia, The Office, Parks and Rec, uh, Seinfeld. Again, there's there's a lot of diversity even within that, but it's all kind of like this comedy thing, right? And then imagine watching like, I don't know, True Detective. It's just like, yeah, it's going to be awesome, but if that's like where your brain is, you have to like adapt. <laughs> and that's where I am with this outer range thing. It's really cool. It's fun so far. Uh, let me know in either in the comments wherever you're listening or on our social media. Email me at mediumcoolpot at gmail.com. I'd be curious to see if you've been watching that, what you think. I'll probably talk a little bit more about it as time goes on, but it looks great, sounds great, compelling. I mean, what else can I ask for? And it's only eight episodes, so should be a lot of fun um but uh yeah so i finished winning time started out of range that's where i am with that we're watching legion uh slowly but surely um doctor who is kind of on the back burner right now we haven't really touched that in a while um i'm still watching uh we own this city and barry season what three four whatever one's airing right now three and uh still watching those caught i'm almost current the ones that just came out uh or the one that's coming out today for We Own the City and the Barry from yesterday I haven't watched. But uh, I will. Uh, very fun. Very fun stuff. So uh, all that to say, I know that this is a movie podcast, but I like to kind of share some of the TV stuff too because TV really is starting and has been for like the last decade, but uh, especially even now. I mean, it's really starting to blur the lines between film and TV because film was so much bigger. But the, the benefit of TV was it always had longer to tell a story. Sometimes that was the curse for it. Sometimes it didn't need that. But man, whenever it would hit, it was better than any movie doing that thing. You know what I mean? So uh, it's so interesting watching it now and just seeing like shows that are just as good as any movie. And again, I'm not trying to make a hierarchy of like movies are the best and then TV. They're different mediums. They're different things. They focus on different things. Um, but uh, honestly, I used to get everything I needed from movies because TV just got on my fucking nerves. It used to. There were just certain tropes in television uh, that I just hated. I hated it. And um, I don't know. I always thought that they lacked focus. Some people really loved it, you know. But if there's a if there's like imagine like the show Barry, okay. Uh, actually, let me think of a different one. Let me think of a, a, a different show here. Um, hmm. I don't know if I can. So I'm going to use Barry. Uh, so Barry is, is uh, it, it follows uh, the main character who is this uh, guy who uh, starts taking an acting class, but he's also like a hitman. And there's a whole lot more to it. But it's like Barry is almost in every scene. Not in every scene, but he's in. Uh, oh, oh. Well, no, that one actually doesn't. So anyways, <laughs> I'm interrupting myself here. But anyways, Barry, uh, like, he's in most scenes, right? But it'd be like, you know, if by season three we have, like, complete sequences with a guy named Noho Hank, complete sequences with his uh, his romantic interest in the, in the show, and complete, like, if, if it wasn't about Barry anymore and we were just following all all like six like six different characters as well so barry is no longer the focus that shit annoys the fuck out of me i don't give a fuck about any of these characters get me back to the focus 
I like focus, and I get that in movies, and a lot of TV doesn't do that. But holy shit, if I haven't been like watching TV shows that kill that, like they're so good at it, they can be focused and still like develop things, right? And I think part of it was I used to hate how they developed the characters in TV. It always just got on my nerves. Um, but man, I, I have to admit, I'm, I'm more of a TV guy than I ever have been now. So uh, it's it's kind of fun watching these things and whatnot. So anyways, I like to share it with you. But uh, that's enough rambling about TV shows. I'm here to talk about movies. I'm going to give you five movies. I'm going to do the same thing I did last week, three reasons for each. I'll probably talk a little bit about others. But I'm also going to give you a little story about why I chose it and, and kind of at what point in my life I saw it. And, um, you know, how the kind of effect that it had on me, maybe. Uh, I have kind of different stories for each one. So I hope you guys enjoy this. Sit tight. I'll be right back to tell you my top five move, or, well, my five movies, at least, on HBO Max that you should see. Oh, and also, uh, fuck you if, you if you can hear the air conditioner and it bothers you. It's too hot. All right? So you can just fuck off. Deal with it. All right, I'll be right back. Right, the first choice that I had was an HBO exclusive. Again, I think you can see it elsewhere. I don't, I, but I think you'll have to. I think you'll have to rent it. I think that's kind of the thing. So I don't know. I haven't actually looked into that. All I know is you can buy it on Amazon and you can uh, you can watch it on HBO. So do what you, with this what you will. But um, excuse me. Uh, the the first movie, and I'll talk a little bit more about it in just a second here. The first movie is You Don't Know Jack from 2010. This is directed by Barry Levinson and written by Adam Mazur. Uh, the cast is Al Pacino, Danny Houston, Susan Sarandon, John Goodman, and Brenda Vaccaro. Uh, release date was uh, April 24, 2010 on HBO. And, of course, it's streaming on HBO Max. And it's about Jack Kevorkian. Uh, and he's the one, he's one of the most polarizing figures in modern U.S. history, you know, uh, a man whose passionate belief that people have the right to die has brought him both praise and vilification. If you don't know who this person is, Jack Forkian, I actually grew up during a lot of these things. I remember my mom saying things um, like, uh, uh, you know, he's Dr. Death, and there were, like, headlines everywhere. I'll come back to that with my story. Um, but this guy, basically, what he would do is uh, he would admin he would bring in patients, he would vet them all, and make sure that they really had no chance of, of getting better. That was, like, one of his keys. He had, like, a code, basically. And uh, if you passed it, he would uh, essentially hook you up to a series of IVs that would ultimately, essentially, lethally inject you right but he would not administer the drugs you as the as the person would do so so there was always this kind of line between Jack Kevorkian it's like is he murdering people or is he just assisting uh you know their death of course this was called assisted suicide um and we'll talk more about that but it, it, it's about a real person and I actually only had very biased understandings of who Jack Kevorkian was before I saw this I'll get to that in my story so anyways, uh, if I remember correctly, Pacino made a deal with HBO, I think it was with HBO or something, uh, for a four-film series, and it started with You Don't Know Jack. He also made one on Phil Spector and some others. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, Barry Levinson directed all of them too, uh, but uh, I'd have to go back and look. You Don't Know Jack was by far the best that I saw, okay? 
Uh, and it, it made my top 10 that year. Actually, I think it might have been 10 or something. Like it was low on the list, but it was in my top 10 of that year. And 2010 was a good year. So, uh, like I said, I remember seeing this. I had pretty low expectations because Levinson directed it. That was good. Like I was, I saw it because of that, right? I'm generally a Levinson fan, but the low expectations were, you know, this was a newer Pacino movie, which I was very unimpressed uh, with Pacino's uh, more recent movies. And then HBO released it. Now, TV movies were never appealing to me. Not that there were never any good ones, but it was few and far between. It was a rarity, I'd say, at that time. So, uh, not to, again, not to say HBO movies were bad. I just hadn't seen a lot of them either. So, and I'd always heard that their shows were great. I had seen a lot of The Sopranos by that time, but I just didn't know how to feel about it. So, you know, at, at that time, that was not a selling point. And I vividly remember watching this movie, and, and there's a distinct scene that I'll bring up later that left me floored and with tears in my eyes. It, like, moved me so deeply, and it was just a thing I did not expect because, again, I had low expectations. But from then on, I felt like I had a better understanding of Kevorkian's perspective because growing up in the church, as I said, you know, he was Dr. Death murdering people, and murder is a sin, so he was a bad guy, right? Like, that's pretty much all it was. I never got any explanations. It's just he's a murderer. That's all I ever heard. So it was interesting, you know, um, I'm not saying I agree or disagree with him. You know, I'd have to re- I'd have to think more about that. I feel like after I watched this, I had a better understanding. Um, but uh, I, I, honestly, I probably side with him. But I don't know. I'd have to think about it. But it was a really interesting time to get, like, perspective on such a thing. So uh, my three reasons for wanting you to see this, and, and I encourage you strongly to go out of your way to find this if you can. I'm not saying this is going to be the best movie you've seen. I'm not going to say this is the best Pacino movie you've seen. I'm not going to say this will be on your top 10 of anything, but it's worth seeing. And it's really, really good. Um, Pacino is reason number one. Um, he normally has such a comically like Pacino vibe, you know, you know, like whatever, like all the vocal things, the idiosyncratic stuff that he does, the idiosyncrasies. And, you know, that's pretty much become his typecast, right? But, uh, and you don't know Jack, it's a wholly different experience, okay? He he rocks the Kevorkian accent that doesn't make me want to hurt myself like his accent in House of Gucci did. It's terrible, and I don't care if it was on purpose. It's fucking stupid. And his performance is way more subdued here in comparison to his performances uh, in other movies around that time. Uh, I think he's really great here, honestly. Uh, and and it may be, there's something about Pacino, and I I very I don't really ever find him to be kind of a warm presence, but there's something about this movie that in my mind I just think of that. I don't know if that's accurate, but in my mind when I think of this movie, I think of Pacino as Jack being warm. There's something compassionate and something likable about him, and. That's just not always what I get from Pacino these days. Uh, the second reason, because Pacino's great in it, the second reason is the reality of life, as I put it. Uh, this movie really digs deep into different perspectives on, uh, you know, kind of the the uh, fragility and the uh, the value of life. And it, you know, of course, there are people boycotting and and protesting. Excuse me, uh, protesting Jack Kevorkian in this movie, and 
you know, uh, it's Christians, it's um, it's it's uh, other people from other avenues of life, pro, like quote unquote pro life folks, uh, all the way to people supporting him and fighting for his right to do this. You get a lot of perspectives, and I think it's an interesting thing to learn. And all of it is done in such a specific tone that it. Yes, it is very much a movie that is on the side of Kevorkian. I'm not saying it adopts all of his ideology, but it's a movie about him. So by that, it supports him so that we get the best perspective of Jack Kevorkian we can. And um, I just feel like Levinson really knocked it out of the park here by instead of just focusing on Dr. Death and the controversy, he actually focuses a lot on the the patient's. The patients that wanted his treatment so that they could go in peace. And uh, a lot of these patients, I mean, all of them were terminal. Uh, The quality of life from then on was um, like rapidly declining. A lot of these people, you know, uh, it was just going to be pain and misery for uh, too long a time before they actually die. And so Jack Kevorkian, out of compassion wanted to tackle these issues and the reality of life part of it is it forced me for the first time to think about suicide in a different way I guess because it's one thing to kill yourself because uh, of uh, either mental illness or, or sadness or depression or like whatever the thing is what whatever it is you know an, an apathy for life uh, not wanting to live it anymore, whatever the reasoning is, a breakup even, like whatever it is. And then juxtaposing that with people with uh, terminal illnesses that will not have any quality of life from here on. It will just begin to to rapidly diminish, diminish, diminish until it doesn't exist. There's no quality. I thought that was very fascinating. And it leads me to reason three. The, the I believe it's the first scene with the patient ending their life. The first time uh, that Jack Kevorkian actually administers this kind of uh, procedure. I And if it's not the first one, it's the first one that sticks in my brain. It's by far the, the first really prominent one. But I'm pretty sure it's the first. And there's a scene, he, he takes a van out into the woods. And it's this woman, and she has a terminal illness. Don't remember what it is. Because I actually haven't seen this since... A couple years after it came out or something, you know, because I saw it the year it came out, but then I, I rewatched it with some people like a year or two later. So, I mean, it's probably been a decade. And uh, but I so I don't remember what the illness was, but I remember that the that the woman and her husband were both there and the husband was supporting her and wanting to do this because he knew that it was going to be just brutal from here on out. And they go and they walk, take a walk. I remember this just kind of being this like kind of subtle, very human moment. And they're just like super in love and. You know, they kiss and they're just gazing into each other's eyes and they're saying these sweet things. And it doesn't feel manipulative. It never felt manipulative to me at the time, at least. I'd have to rewatch it and see now. But it never felt manipulative. It was like this very real, true thing. Again, that reality of life. Like, what would I say, especially if I know the precise moment I'm going to die? And this is really heavy. And I just remember her getting in the van, laying down, Kevorkian gets her all hooked up but the chemicals are clamped and she has to pull a string to unclamp them it would pull the clamp off and the chemicals would run and then she would pass and I remember him explaining everything to her 
I think he even records it. I can't remember. I think he does later, at least. And, and he says, are you sure you want to do this? And she's like, yes, let's just get on with it. You know, like, I'm ready. Now is the time. And he goes, all right, all you have to do is pull this, and it will do. And he starts to explain the process, and she just yanks it before he's even done. She's ready. And I remember just sitting there, my eyes filling with tears, the, this, the heaviness in my chest of having to be put in a situation like that. You know? It was really, really heavy. Um, I, I strongly, strongly recommend that you check out You Don't Know Jack if you can. I know that I just said a heavy part. There's funny stuff in it. You know, it, 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 it has a lot of levity. All right, if you know Barry Levinson, I mean, this is the guy. I mean, hell, what what all did he do? He did uh, Good Morning Vietnam. Hold on, I'm gonna I'm gonna look up his filmography here. I know he did Diner. Um, he did The Natural. He did Rain Man. There you go. So Rain Man has some really really heavy stuff in it as well. But again, there's like a levity to it, right? Uh, but uh, yeah. So he did. Uh, hold on, what the heck? Okay, all right. I had uh, actor open instead of uh, of director on IMDb. I was like, where are all of his movies? Uh, but yeah, he did Diner, The Natural, Good Morning Vietnam, Rain Man. He did uh, uh, Toys, which is like a really dark um, uh, Robin Williams movie. Uh, I remember seeing that as a kid. But he did Sleepers, which is another one that's like about super heavy shit. Um, but to an extent, there's a bit of levity there. Liberty Heights, Wag the Dog. I mean, he did a bunch of these movies that I feel like give you a pretty good understanding of what he does, right? Uh, so uh, definitely go check out You Don't Know Jack. Uh, the next movie I want to talk about is the silent film I mentioned. It is uh, the Charlie Chaplin film from 1931 called City Lights, written, directed, produced, composed, and edited by Charlie Chaplin. Uh, cast starring Charlie Chaplin, of course, as the Tramp, along with Virginia Cheryl and Harry Myers. Uh, it was released January 30th, 1931, with a budget of $1.5 million, and in the box office it made $4.25 million, which for 1931, that's a major, major success and a really fucking expensive movie. Uh, this is uh, streaming on HBO Max and the Criterion Channel, if you have either one of those. You can also rent this uh, a variety of places. You should definitely check this out. The film is about uh, a penniless man. This is the Tramp, the famous Chaplin kind of uh, recurring character who falls in love with a blind flower girl. And we follow the Tramp as, you know, he goes through an elaborate series of events in order to win her over. And it's a, it's a, it is a romantic comedy of sort. I mean, it is uh, purely, but it's also classic silent comedy. And furthermore, it is Chaplin comedy and so this is a very different thing but Chaplin is a very interesting person in my history uh and and if you read about Chaplin or you watch documentaries about him or you watch the uh the uh Robert I think it's uh the Attenborough film that he did the biopic with um fucking Iron Man what's the dude's why did I just forget his name um hold on (laughs) <laughs> oh, uh, Robert Downey Jr. I I don't know how I just forgot his name. But anyways, Robert Downey Jr. plays Chaplin in the Attenborough biopic from like 92 or something, 94. I don't remember. Uh, but you, you can check that out. I mean, Ch- Chaplin was a bit of a problematic person, you know, at the time. Well, any time. But I'm just saying like, um, you know, some of the things he did at the time were less controversial, uh, unfortunately. So it's like whenever you look at it kind of historically, but it's still kind of fucked up now. So, anyways, uh, the yeah, it it uh, I remember watching the my first 
Chaplin film in 2007, I saw Modern Times from 1936. It's the film he made after City Lights and before The Great Dictator. And for the first time, uh, when I saw it for the first time, I mean, uh, in a, in, I saw it in a class that my ex-wife was taking when we were dating. Um, and I sat in on the class and uh, and I, I sat in on it a few times. I watched a bunch of really awesome shit. Um, but uh, I, I got to see Modern Times. And I, I never realized silent films could be so exciting and fun. The entire class loved Modern Times. I mean, imagine 30 people in a contemporary setting, or at least 2007 setting, and we're talking about a bunch... I mean, 2007 was a great year. No Country for Old Men, There Will Be Blood, Juno had just come out recently. Um, like, such great movies. Zodiac, all kinds of shit. Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. That's coming out then. Also, you have all the movies prior to it. And then think of them watching a silent movie. I just feel like a lot of people just don't get it. It is a very different thing. Um, and in my own experiences with silent movies in class, Chaplin is, and sometimes Keaton, Buster Keaton, but Chaplin is the one that really carries over because a lot of people don't like other silent movies. And so we're watching this and everyone loved it. And we're all laughing out loud, like belly laughs, like we thought it was really funny. And it wasn't until I took a film history course with uh, Dr. Wes Gehring at Ball State University that, uh, and he's a Chaplin enthusiast and scholar, and he screened The Gold Rush and then my personal favorite, City Lights, which we're going to talk about here. But I also saw many other Chaplin movies. I mean, this guy really gave me a Chaplin education. I saw a bunch of his shorts. I saw The Kid, The Circus, The Great Dictator, Monsieur Verdu, uh, all kinds of uh, Chaplin movies. And uh, City Lights has always stood out to me. And I think part of it, and this is reason one, is its timelessness. Like I said, I saw City Lights with a group of peers at Ball State. I saw uh, Modern Times with a group of people I didn't know but of college age in Texas, in a Texas class. Um, I've watched Chaplin with friends that are not into, like, that haven't watched silent movies before. And Chaplin, from beginning to end, always wins people over. I've never shown someone a Chaplin movie and they didn't like it. They might not like it as much as me, but I've never shown someone a Chaplin movie and they didn't have a great time. They didn't think it was funny because he is a genius. And with especially with like the Criterion Collection restorations, they look timeless too. I mean, City Lights looks incredible for being, I mean, how many years is it now? 91 years? No, no, yeah, 91 years old, something like that. And Modern Times like 85 or 86, um, so I don't know. I can't do math right now. The point is, they're old as fuck, and they look awesome. So, uh, and then the kid is like, you know, over 100 years old, and that thing looks amazing. So uh, th they're just really great at these restorations, and so it's like really easy to watch. They have great music that they add to it. Of course, City Lights is interesting because in 1931, we already had talkies, as they called them, where they are actually adding sound to the movies. And so uh, the sound that was selected was actually Chaplin doing that. Like, that was something that was actually stuck to the movie. So what we get there is what they put there back then. Um, whereas his earlier stuff, like The Gold Rush, you know, you'd have people live in the theater playing music to it and kind of following along with the movie. But in this case, he was actually able to attach uh, the music to the movie. Uh, but it is still a silent film, even though it was like talky era. And so uh, the timelessness aspect, I mean, again, with the restorations and the music and just his comedy, it seems so timeless because no matter who I watch it with, no matter what age, people seem to enjoy it. So it's always fun to watch. But on a personal level, uh, City Lights is uh, 
timeless because of my second reason, which is Chaplin's comedy. Chaplin has a way of taking like very basic, simple comedy sketches and turning them into something that is laugh out loud funny. Uh, so, for example, and I don't think this part's laugh out loud funny. It's more endearing. But there's a point in the Gold Rush, I believe it is, where he puts two rolls at the on the end of two different forks. So it's like legs with feet now, which like feet with shoes or whatever. And he just starts doing a little dance with them. And it's like you can Google this. It's super, super famous. You can probably even find a GIF of it or whatever. But anyways, uh, like just little things like that. You know, he could he could uh, he could have a string in his pocket and pull it out and be confused by it and make a whole skit. An entire scene that completely revolves around this fucking string, you know, like, uh, dude, he uh, he made a, a whole bit in in uh, in a party where he gets drunk um, and I forget what it is, uh, but there are like balloons and like bubbles and stuff that are happening and it's all tied to like him being drunk. He is just so good um, at doing things with his surroundings and kind of like this minimalist comedy that ends up kind of being grandiose in its own way. Um, and uh, juxtaposed against someone like Buster Keaton, who uh, loves really big kind of spectacle gags, right? So the facade of a house falling uh, over him, but instead of crushing him, he falls through a window, right? The window part falls right over him. Uh, or, uh, you know, being on a train, uh, that is actually moving and him having to like, you know, work uh, on and off of it and stick with it. And uh, I mean, I could just go on and on, but it's really boring to talk about. Like you have to just see it. Go look at Buster Keaton. Uh, go look at like a Buster Keaton um, stunt reel or something. And you'll see all of this crazy shit that he did. I mean, it's crazy by today's standard. It's wild. We would just CG all that shit now. He did it back in the 20s. So, uh, but uh, uh, that's like spectacle. Chaplin's not really spectacle. Chaplin does these like very personal, private, like body comedy, right? Like, um, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, not slapstick comedy, but um, I can't think of the term right now. I'll think of it as we go. Uh, but uh, physical comedy, God. But he he does great physical comedy, uh, and and of course personality comedy. He's great. He hits a lot of those like kind of subgenres of comedy. Uh, but Chaplin's comedy is so on point. Everyone thinks it's funny. Like, I really haven't seen someone who hasn't watched it and had a good time. And I think sometimes it's also the time and the place, too. If you're in a class and you have to be there, what a fucking great movie to watch. To watch, like, Modern Times or City Lights or Gold Rush or something. You know, The Kid. Like, what a great t way to spend time where you have to be somewhere. Some of them might have a different experience. If you're watching with someone else, neither one of you know a ton about Chaplin, but I told you to watch it, so you put it on, and uh, maybe it's not as great, but I encourage you to really try to understand how kind of incredible, like, no one's better at this than him today. Like, I'll make that bold statement. Like, there's still never been a Chaplin since. He has a, a very unique type of comedy, and I think that's part of the appeal as well, that, like, you can't replicate this easily. And the third reason is uh, the city lights, uh, you know, city lights has a heart. And uh, the final shot of the film is much like uh, Woody Allen's uh, Manhattan, the very final shot. He clearly took it from this where, uh, you know, the uh, the tramp goes to meet the flower girl finally. And uh, I won't tell you why. Like, I'll let you just watch the movie. I'm trying not to spoil like story beats because some of them are really, really great. 
even though like even if you knew what the story was it's like who fucking cares because you just got to see how it's done uh so i guess i'll say this i'll 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 give a little bit of it away all right but again i i think you have to just see this movie so uh the the tramp see she's been a blind flower girl and the tramp she thinks the tramp is like this rich guy or whatever like this wealthy guy so at the end of the movie she gets uh, a procedure done on her eyes so she can see again and the tramp walks into the flower shop and she doesn't recognize him right so she's talking to him and finally he talks to her and she realizes oh fuck you're the guy and all it does is cuts to his face and he just kind of looks at her and there's like this subtle smile but not really like this very complex kind of expression on his face and it sits there for like five seconds and then it cuts to black and there's just something so moving about the final scene of this movie um, but also just like the heart throughout the 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 hoops that he is so happily willing to jump through just to, you know, make sure that she's happy. You know, um, it's just wow. Uh, just what a, what a what a great movie. You got to go check out City Lights. It's on HBO Max. Uh, I really, really hope you give it a shot. I really hope you enjoy it. Uh, again, it might be different for you. It is a silent film, but it is uh, it is timeless as far as I'm concerned. I don't know which. Uh, I, I kind of want to look it up right now. Um, which uh, restoration they have? I don't know if it's good. I'm actually going to play it on this on my other screen right now just to see how this looks, so I can give you some inside some inside baseball here. It looks great. So this is probably just like the Criterion version or something. Uh, it looks absolutely excellent. So, anyways, all that said, go check out City Lights by Charlie Chaplin. It's from 1931. It's on HBO. Max. Now, uh, you know, we've already we've talked about uh, an HBO exclusive that not a lot of people talk about. I've literally never heard anyone bring it up to me. And when I bring it up, sometimes people have heard of it, but only like Joe and a couple of other people have seen it and been like, dude, that movie is awesome. But everyone I know who's seen it thinks it's awesome. Uh, but anyways, you have You Don't Know Jack. We have City Lights, which is a silent film. Now I'm moving over to documentaries. And uh, HBO Max has a really great documentary I saw. Uh, I probably saw it in after 2003 i remember i bought a copy of it from blockbuster back when they used to sell you know you'd get like a three for ten or whatever uh dvds and uh, this is one that i just bought and uh, one of my friends had told me to watch it so i just bought it there uh or buy three get one free i think was the deal so this was just some like free one i got and man, was it fantastic. It's a movie called Capturing the Freedmen's. Uh, I know that uh, my uh, friend of the show, Sam Watermeyer, the movie man, Sam the movie man, um, I know that he loves this movie as well. Uh, so it's it's really, really great. I need to rewatch this one too. I haven't seen this one in probably 15 plus years either. But uh, anyways, it came out uh, May 30th, 2003. I believe it was aired on HBO as well. So um, I know you can see this outside of HBO, but this may be more of an HBO thing as well. Uh, but you should definitely check it out. They, there is a free version. If you don't have HBO Max, there is a free version on YouTube. It does have Spanish uh, hard-coded subtitles. Um, but the movie's there, so that's up to you. It looks like a DVD rip. It's, it, it's, it's fine. Uh, you could definitely watch it. Totally, totally, totally worth it. So uh, this movie is an Oscar-nominated documentary about a middle-class American family who is torn apart when the father, Arnold, and son, Jesse, are accused of sexually abusing numerous children. Director Andrew Jarecki interviews people from different sides of this tragic story and raises the question of whether they were rightfully tried when they claim that they were innocent and there was never any evidence against them. 
this is probably the first documentary that I saw and felt completely crushed and equally captivated by. Like full transparency, I have I uh, have not seen this like I said in probably 15 plus years, but I still have vivid memories of certain aspects that make this automatically worth recommending. Like I just don't care uh, if I see it again, it will still be worth it. There's no question in my mind that this is great. So because this is a documentary, there's really not as much to say about it for me other than um, my three reasons. Uh, first are the Freedmans. I think the Freedmans are a fascinating family. Um, you have David and Jesse and uh, their father, I believe it was Arthur. Let me double check that. Excuse me. Um but uh, Arnold, my bad, my bad. Uh, so you have uh, Arnold, uh, Elaine Friedman, just hearing her talk makes me so happy. You know, <laughs> uh, just her voice. There's something about this family that is so, you know, 70s, basically, you know, or like or like of a, of a past time that uh, they are truly the kind of all-American family. And, and it's not until kind of like a, a, a deep-seated, dark past comes out, or present in, in many ways, I guess, uh, until that comes out that uh, you start to really see the family uh, is not as perfect or, or, or at least as classic as it seems, right? Uh, so the the entire idea is that, that Arnold... Um, and again, they, they show both sides of this and they argue about the evidence. But what I remember specific, very vividly is, uh, the, um, law enforcement basically taking a computer out because it had child porn on it. And it's all about this family where Arnold is this kind of very, very respectable man in, in the, in the community. And, uh, you know, he has worked with kids for decades and, and he, you know, blah, 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 blah. Like, everything is kind of perfect with the Freedmans. And then this little bit comes out, and it becomes this whole, whole huge thing. And uh, part of what I love about that, too, is because the Freedmans kind of represent America as well, right? Because as America, you know, we we might, to many people from the outside, look perfect, or we might not that perfect is not fair, but it might look appealing. You might want to come here. You might want to live here. Uh, some people, but the thing is, um, you know, there is a a, a, a deep rooted uh, problematic past and present uh, that exists. And it's like the Freedmans essentially embody uh, America and Americans, and they they are that manifestation. Of course, the film's not necessarily like tackling that idea per se, but it's just so interesting to kind of watch how everything unfolds in this documentary. And this was uh, director uh, Andrew Jarecki's uh, first doc, I believe, and it got all kinds of attention. Um, it got, uh, let's see, it was not it won uh, a few awards, uh, none of which are particularly not notable. Um, but for the level of this film, you know, th they're good. I uh, won a bunch of stuff, actually. I'm like scrolling through it right now. Um, but the it, it was nominated for uh, Best Documentary Feature in the Academy Awards in 2004. And um, didn't win, unfortunately. But, um, you know, it was nominated. This this has a, a lot. It did really well at Sundance. 
Uh, I want to say it got like a grand jury prize or something, uh, possibly. So uh, th- there's there's uh, there's a lot going on with this movie. You should definitely check this out. Um, and f- one of those reasons is just the Freedmans and what they represent and and how that story of the Freedmans is told. The second thing, and I think is even more important than the Freedmans themselves uh, themselves is I, I I forget in in. Thinking back, I forget if it's uh, Jesse or David. I want to say it's David um, Friedman. Um, but one of them basically recorded like 25 years of home videos. So most the documentary is talking heads of people now and home video footage. And uh, I, I'll say it's David. I, I may have this wrong, like I said. But David... Also, I think David wants to be a clown, if I remember correctly, too, but <laughs> it's not that important. The point is, um, they uh, he so he has uh, all of this home footage, home video footage, and he has home video footage of his father being taken away. It has home video footage of him essentially journaling, you know, uh, as, as like a video diary where he's just kind of like ranting and, and raving about what's going on. These home videos are so impactful, truly. Um, there, there's a there is a movie called uh, At the Death House Door, which follows a uh, what do you call it? A um, not coroner, but a um, why do I forget words all the time? Am I, am I definitely like a what's happening with my brain? I don't know what's happening. Um, but anyways, you know, a minister that kind of goes into the church. You guys are thinking of the word now for some reason. I can't think of it. But uh, anyways, uh, so there's this minister, but he's a, he's a, a chaplain. Ha <laughs> ha. Um, but he is a prison chaplain. And so uh, he takes people to be to the lethal injection chamber, and he prays with them, and he stands there with them, and then they die, right? Well, he is an old-fashioned guy, right? And so what he does is uh, he holds in his emotions, and he kind of hides them. He doesn't share them with anyone else. But after every kill, he would go uh, rec- audio record every single time that he sat there with someone who died. And all he would do is just re kind of tell that whole time that he was there and in that movie I'm making a point but in that movie they play parts of those tapes and it's heart-wrenching it's insane it's intense and insane the Freedmans is similar in that way in terms of uh you know this is these are real people making home videos these aren't these aren't uh like cinematic things being created for this documentary these are real so we get to see real people reacting in real time um from their perspective right yes these home videos are biased but that's part of what creates my first reason the freedmans right uh the home videos are are inseparable from this doc and honestly they're part of what make it so great also if you do get a chance to see at the death house door i actually don't know how to see that um outside of when i saw it on ifc or wherever it was but uh, that's really great but aside from that it's not on hbo max i don't think the point is capturing the freedmans the freedmans are great the home videos are great and the way that the documentary tackles the case is great. That's my third reason. Um, I, I really do like that they give all perspectives of the situation. And they really try to... Uh, it reminds me almost of like Paradise Lost, even though that is very much for um, the West Memphis Three. Uh, Paradise Lost is an incredible documentary. But the way that it tackles the West Memphis Three trials and how biased they were against them... Um, and essentially wrongfully imprisoning these kids because they dress like metal goth kids, basically. 
And uh, that documentary is actually incredible. But this does something very similar in terms of like the way it tackles the case. And uh, all of these things, the Freedman's Home videos and the way that it tackles the case. Uh, sorry, I'm kind of like thinking as I'm talking to because it's like, man, I don't want to give things I remember away because I would rather you just experience them. So go out of your way to see Capturing the Freedmans. This is one of my favorite documentaries. And like I said, I haven't seen it in like 15 plus years, so that could change upon rewatching it, but I can't imagine it changing because uh, this was just a really powerful movie. And I remember when I bought it from Blockbuster and I watched it and I, I thought it was really great, but I wasn't like that impressed by it. And then I started talking to my friend who had recommended it to me. And the more he talked about it, I went and rewatched the movie. I'm like, fuck, this movie is awesome. Like so, something just clicked with me the next time. Like, I guess I just wasn't giving it the proper uh, viewing experience or whatever, like the proper screening. I wasn't in the right mental place, maybe. I don't know. But man, this movie packs a punch and I really, really love I could do a whole I can't wait to do a whole show on documentaries. Uh, I've been planning it, but I just need to go back and watch some. Capturing the Freedmans is one. Definitely, definitely check that out. The fourth movie I want to talk about is more of uh, one. I wouldn't call it obscure, but it's one of the more bizarre picks on here. It is Beyond the Black Rainbow from 2010. Did not get a release until May 18th, 2022 uh, or 2012. Uh, which was limited, then September 11th, 2012, had its D DVD premiere. The cast is uh, Ava Bourne and Michael Rogers. Those are the only two uh, that were familiar to me. Um, and uh, it's written and directed by Panos Cosmatos, who uh, I'll talk about another movie that he did. Uh, this dude's fucking awesome. Talk about like a unique vision in this day and age. This guy has it. And if you go back and listen to the uh, the uh, what the uh, Andy Williams? I almost got mad because I was like, "What's his last name?" Um, but if you go back and listen to the Andy Williams episode, uh, he talks. We talk about Cosmatos, um, the director, and we talk about some of his movies. Uh, this it's great. So, anyways, it was a budget of one point one million dollars. So super low budget. I mean, this is an independent film. Wait until you hear me talk about this movie. And this is just proof that post millennium. Okay, and granted, this is, you know, uh, it's been 10 years since its release and 12 years since it was properly made and released. Um, this movie, for a little over a million dollars, did something incredible. Now, the reason that you're not going to see a lot of these, though, is because it did only make $56,491 back. So a flop in terms of box office. However, this is on HBO Max. It's also uploaded on YouTube. Um I think just someone uploaded it. So for the time being, if it's up, you can check it out there. If you don't have HBO Max, uh, you can also just rent it. Dude, if you're into kind of like slow burn, David Lynch, like super kind of creative, kind of weird um, movies, just straight up buy this. It's super cheap on Amazon. I'm sure it's super cheap elsewhere. Just buy this movie, dude. Um, either a hard copy or digital. And support this because it's great. Okay, I've rambled too long. Uh, quick synopsis. Deep within the mysterious Arborea Institute, a disturbed and beautiful girl is held... I love that they put beautiful in there. Uh, is <laughs> uh, held captive by a doctor in search of inner peace. Her mind is controlled by a sinister technology. Silently, she waits for her next session with deranged therapist Dr. Barry Nile. 
If she hopes to escape, she must journey through the darkness, through the darkest reaches of the Institute. But Niall won't easily part with his uh, most gifted and dangerous creation. Uh, okay, so quick uh, little, very brief backstory for, for my story portion of this. From each year, I try to watch a wide range of titles before I form a top 10 list for a given year. To the extent that I will give up certain titles that have been talked about a lot and stuff just so I can try to get in some lesser knowns or, or lesser talked about movies so I can give them like a, a, a chance, right? So in 2012, there were two movies that came out. One was Holy Motors and the other was Beyond the Black Rainbow. And they were two like of the bizarre looking movies that I, had, I just had to see. Now, one was critically acclaimed. One I had never heard of. Unfortunately, Beyond the Black Rainbow was the latter. And I remember watching this and thinking like, fuck, dude, I have not seen any anything like this in a very long time. And even then, it's not quite like this. Like, it's almost like an, an amalgam of like many different things. Uh, but there are a few reasons to see Beyond the Black Rainbow. This, uh, By the way, this was um, I forced this into a top 10. Uh, by It wasn't really in the top 10. It was like... Uh, this and Holy Motors were like 11 and 12, basically. Uh, but I kind of forced these in to like the top 10. Because used to, I only listed my 10. And then uh, these, I kind of made like bonus picks because I wanted people to watch them. Of course, again, Holy Motors got a lot of critical acclaim. But Beyond the Black Rainbow just fell off the face of the earth. And it kills me because it's so good. So uh, the, the first reason you should watch this is Panos Cosmatos, the, the writer and director. He's the, the director that made Mandy back in 2018, starring Nicolas Cage. And um, he continues to exhibit and establish uh, his signature style here. Um, uh, basically, Beyond the Black Rainbow is kind of the, uh, I don't know, maybe you'd call it like, I mean, Mandy was like the real breakout movie because it had the stars and it actually got like some press and stuff. Uh, but Beyond the Black Rainbow was the first chance for him to kind of solidify that style. And uh, his style is so badass. And honestly, I'm, I'm just going to talk about reason two and three kind of with this because it ties into that style. But I'll say this. What I love about Cosmatos is uh, I, I can see a lot of his influences. And like he's able to put those all together in a way not unlike a, a Tarantino or something where Tarantino has so many out there like it's spaghetti westerns and kung fu movies and French New Wave and 70s Grindhouse and they'll somehow make a movie like Kill Bill or something that has like all of these fucking things in one go and it's like cohesive like it somehow just works that I don't understand and uh, Cosmatos kind of does the same thing. It just looks and feels very different. It's like nothing like a Tarantino movie in that way. But he has a very signature style, and I really appreciate when a filmmaker has like a style all their own. And so this is one of those examples. And like I said, you know, my other reasons are tied to the production. This, my second reason is the sound design. There are just droning sounds. And it just like keeps going. There's like a tension and an atmosphere that starts to build. Like almost purely on the sound. And that's something that you don't uh you don't get with a budget. You get with talent. Someone that can actually see this shit 
and go, you know what? This needs this needs a droning sound for the whole time. And it's like amazing. What is what is going on here? So uh, the sound design, uh, it's not just the droning, though. It's everything. It's, it's uh, everything from the score uh, and the way that that plays into everything to uh, which is like that kind of like... Um, uh, it's pretty old school, the, the score. It's almost like an 80s or like a Stranger Things, like, womp, 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 you know, I don't know, like that kind of synthesizer sound. And, uh, but you have, you have like the score, you have the, the, uh, kind of droning sounds, but it's just everything. Like sometimes there'd just be like this clang and this like flash of sound, right? And, uh, it just completely encompasses and, and brings you into this movie. You know, it's uh, amazing because you watch something like even a David Lynch movie or something like that, and, and the sound is so important to the movie. You know, there's something about the way the sound plays with you as you're watching because sound can be, uh, you know, I, I've talked with um, other kind of film students and stuff, and people have made short films. It's like, what's the, every time I ask them, what's the number one thing you think of when you think of a student film and honestly all of my friends will say bad audio <laughs> and uh, a lot of times like bad audio is worse than bad video because at least you can look past uh you know the bad video if you can at least like get good audio right uh, sometimes movies are meant to look bad or they're intentionally you know they look aged or or whatever but the audio is still good and it's just like super helpful in this movie, uh, I don't give a fuck if it's $1.1 million. Their audio is top-notch. It's awesome. It pulls you in. It builds an atmosphere. It gets the job done. And my third reason is, the, as I put it, the, the visual smorgasbord. Uh, it's almost Kubrickian. Kubrickian, I guess I should say. But if Kubrick made like a Grindhouse movie in the late 70s, early 80s, mixed with like David Lynch or something. Like... <laughs> um, it's it's pacing is slow, so if you're not into like slow movies, you can uh, just I don't know. I want you to watch it anyways, but it's like I get if you aren't like a huge fan because it is slow. But I don't feel the slowness because I don't feel like you can ever get bored because of how visually stunning it is. There will like there is a total vibe and a grittiness to the to the film. I don't know if they shot on film or digital, but um, like on the visuals, there's like a graininess and a grittiness to it. It really feels like an early 80s thing to me. And then uh, on top of that, you get like these moments where uh, like there's a moment where they have uh, where Dr. Barry has uh, what's her name? Uh, the the disturbed and beautiful girl. I can't remember her name right now, but uh, she's sitting in this chair in this room. They're separated by glass and where Dr. Barry is. And you can see this in the trailer where Dr. Barry is. All the lighting in there is just red, right? And it's these huge kind of like almost like fluorescent panels that are back to back, like side by side. And it's just like almost like pure panels of light above and it's just red. And then on the other side of the glass where uh, the disturbed young girl is, uh, you have white. And it's the same type of lighting. And she's sitting in this chair that looks like it comes straight out of like Clockwork Orange or 2001. Dude, it's fucking awesome. Like, just looking at it. And 
honestly, they'll probably sit there for like 30 seconds and all you hear is and I'm just like, this is fucking incredible. Like, I don't know why, but like the outfits too, like there's something about the way, what everyone is wearing, you know, and there's this one dude that looks like he's wearing like a biker suit with like a helmet, but he almost almost looks like some updated version of Tron or something. I don't fucking know. The point is there's some weird shit. They're like monster creatures in this dude. It's fucking weird. And then the visual style, it goes from like straight. I don't mean black and white as in grayscale, like watching an old movie, black and white. I mean, black and white contrast. There's a whole scene where there's like a black fucking pool and it's centered in the middle of the screen and a dude crawls out of it and he's completely covered in black, of course, because he crawls out of it. But as he crawls across the white, it's just obviously smearing across but it's all just pure black and white no grayscale you know and then it cuts to a different scene and it's a it's like a different visual style and then it cuts to another scene and it's the visual style i just described with the lighting and and the weird chair and all that shit dude this movie is just weird but like i said cosmatos went on to make something like mandy which i think is a superior film for sure uh but this is uh this is just one of those kind of under the radar for a lot of people, you know, under the radar movies that I just really strongly encourage people to watch. I'm rambling about this, so I'm going to shut up. Uh, Beyond the Black Rainbow is on HBO Max. Like I said, it's also on YouTube if you want to check it out, uh, just free on YouTube. Uh, but, dude, it is, man, it is just one of the, all right, so as someone who sees like a ton of fucking movies, especially per year, it's so refreshing even if the movie's not great, it's so refreshing when you get to see something that's just different. You know? Like, that shows some level of talent from a filmmaker that's, like, doing something different and has a vision. Like, it's one thing to do different, but to, to make it look so intentional and, like, this could not be done without this person. That is so refreshing. So even if this wasn't in my proper top 10, it's the reason that I made it a bonus pick because I wanted people to watch it because it was refreshing that year. It was exciting to watch it, even if it was kind of slow, you know? So go watch Beyond the Black Rainbow. It's fucking awesome. So my last pick is uh, one of my all-time favorite movies. It is Boogie Nights from 1997, written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, starring an, like just an all-star and an ensemble cast. At the time, they may not have been all-stars, but they are now. Mark Wahlberg, Julianne Moore, Burt Reynolds, Don Cheadle, John C. Riley, William H. Macy, Heather Graham, Nicole Parker, Philip Seymour Hoffman. There are other people, too, uh, but that's the... Only people that I actually end up writing down. There's so many other people. Uh, Tom Jane's in it. Um, ah, fuck. What's that dude's name? Um, uh, Alfred Molina's in it. I mean, there's a bunch of people in this. Uh, but those are kind of the heavy hitters. And it was released October 8, 1997, in a limited release. But then it was wide released on Halloween, 97. So October 31st. What a weird uh, Halloween movie. So anyways, uh, the budget was $15 million. It brought in $43.1 million. Again, this is on HBO Max. Paul Thomas Anderson is uh, probably my favorite living filmmaker right now. Uh, if we get into living or dead, he's not my favorite, but uh, that's, a, that's, that's, just, that's a whole lot of history there, okay? Um, but in terms of who's alive now and just with what they've built, you know, you have your Scorsese's and you have all of these 
kind of greats. But man, Paul Thomas Anderson is the dude that is making movies that I think are timeless and are movies that will uh, just really be inspirational and influential in the future. It's the kind of thing that uh, that critics and uh, you know, uh, f- like uh, film people studying film and different things are going to be looking at these movies as these kind of grade A, uh, you know, uh, post millennial citizen canes. You know what I mean? I mean that's a, that. Listen, I'm I'm you know I'm being hyperbolic there, but my point is, um, I I think something like there will be blood is a tour de force. Period. It is incredible. I think uh, there will be blood is probably the film of the 2000s. Okay, so that tells you how much I love and 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 the master I think is easily in the top ten of films in the 2010s. I don't know where I'd put it, but this dude uh, and. In the 90s, you have either Boogie Nights or Magnolia. So really, in three decades, okay, in three decades, this dude has a film that I would consider among the best of the decade, not just the year, the decade. Now, I think Magnolia is probably a better film across the board, but my personal favorite, um, you know, uh, well, I don't even know if this is my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson anymore. Uh, I'd really have to think about that, but it was always my default favorite. Uh, but my preferred is uh, is Boogie Nights. And, uh, dude, this movie, it's set in 1977, and you may have seen it, but I, I'm, I'm putting this on here because it is on HBO Max, and you should rewatch it because it's, it's just great American cinema here. Set in 1977, back when sex was safe, pleasure was a business, and business was booming. Idealistic porn producer Jack Horner aspires to elevate his craft to an art form. Horner discovers Eddie Adams, a hot young talent working as a busboy in a nightclub, and welcomes him into the extended family of movie makers, misfits, and hangers-on that are always around. Uh, Adams' rise from nobody to celebrity adult entertainer is meteoric, and soon the whole world seems to know his porn alter ego, Dirk Diggler. Now, uh, when disco and drugs are in vogue, uh, fashion is in flux and the party never seems to stop. Adam's drug, uh, or sorry, Adam's dreams. He does a lot of drugs in this movie too, but, <laughs> um, Adam's dreams of turning sex into stardom are about to collide with cold, hard reality. Um, quick story here. I think I had, I don't remember if I saw this or Magnolia first, but whenever I got in the film, the only movies that he had made, actually, I think I saw Punch Drunk Love first. Uh, that was the most recent movie when I started getting into film in 2003. So I think I saw Punch Drunk Love, and then I saw this and Magnolia. I don't remember which one I saw first. I also saw Hard Aid as well. And when I saw this, I was sincerely, and same with Magnolia, but I'm focusing on Boogie Nights here, I was floored. Because it starts off like it's going to be some porno romp, right? Like some set, like movie set in the 70s about porn and it's just going to be some like funny sexy thing or whatever um this movie is about so much more and it goes so much further because the first act of course is setting up mark Wahlberg's character eddie adams or dirk diggler as he'll become and it's establishing that character and uh, i just remember watching this and thinking like oh god this is like such a silly movie and then you get to the basically you get to when uh 
We'll just say when one of the characters shoots themselves. I'll just say it that way, in case you haven't seen it. Though, like, what in the fuck are you missing? This movie's like 25 years old now. You need to fucking watch it. But, uh, or no, it's not. Yeah, it is. It's like fucking 25 years old. Go watch it. So anyways, uh, when one of the characters kills themselves, a dark turn across the board happens. And a lot of shit starts going down. And I just remember watching this, and I had already... I. I don't remember. I think I had already seen Robert Altman movies, but I was always a huge fan of ensemble casts like this. And and uh, so the ensemble cast was a huge thing that really kind of, I don't know, like uh, there was something about how it was used because I kind of bitched about TV earlier in this episode and about how you have like there's no focus and like older TV shows some sometimes, sometimes there's like no focus they have, like, way too many characters trying to focus on. I'm like, I don't give a fuck about any of these. I just want to, like, hang out with this main character and let's, like, do some shit. And, uh, but but when you can work an ensemble cast in a certain way. You know, this is like, um, this is also like Scorsese's, uh, you know, you could say Goodfellas or Casino uh, or Wolf of Wall Street even. Where the soundtrack, I mean, this, like, I think Boogie Nights is around two and a half hours, but it doesn't, you can't, you don't feel it. Because you have all the shit going on, the soundtracks booming, you know, everything just moves at just such a perfect pace. And so uh, when I watched this, this was, you know, uh, pretty early on in terms of uh, my film love. And I watched Pulp Fiction, which is the movie, the first American movie that kind of got me into movies and brought me back to U.S. film. But shortly after that, I saw this, and this was just as impactful on me because I could see something that was trying to play with some taboos, but then it ended up abandoning them halfway through rightfully. So just to focus on character development and building these other characters and showing what life, what their lives are like. So, uh, that's like my story portion. That's not even a reason <laughs> to watch this. Um, it was just a, a really influential film on me, and it's something that I, I feel like people should actually watch and take seriously because I think it's really easy to just watch this, much like Full Metal Jacket, like the first act or whatever, where Arlie Ermey is the drill sergeant and everyone can kind of laugh and have a good time with it. I feel like people might try to do that through this whole film, but it's so much more than that. And so my first reason is uh, Mark. this is Mark Wahlberg's best performance. You might like another Mark Wahlberg movie, but uh, it's this is his best performance, not because it's necessarily his best acting. I believe it is, but I'm not, I don't know. We'd, we'd have to watch some uh, rewatch and watch some Mark Wahlberg stuff. Because I'll tell you what, it's not The Departed. It's definitely not that one. So uh, not only is this my favorite Mark movie with Mark Wahlberg in it, but I think it's his best performance because the acting fits the film so well that it is just his best outing. All the little idiosyncrasies that Mark Wahlberg has, all the goofiness that he can bring, fits perfectly as this character. So when I watch it, I, I almost just forget about Mark Wahlberg. Not to say that he fully di disappears like some Daniel Day-Lewis or something. I don't mean that. But it's like I almost forget and I just see Dirk Diggler. He's like such a character, and that's obviously a testament to the writing and things, but I think Mark Wahlberg kills this in a good way, like kicks it out of the park uh, or hits it out of the park. doesn't matter. Brain's not really working very well. The point is uh, this is his best outing 
So what if you are not a Mark Wahlberg fan, watch this. If you are a Mark Wahlberg fan and haven't seen this, what in the fuck are you waiting for? This is his best movie. So <laughs> uh, the second reason to watch this is Paul Thomas Anderson. This is his first film that hit big. Okay. He did Hard Eight prior to that, or Sydney, which is a, an alternative title, uh, whichever uh, you know one you want to call it. But uh, I call it Hard Eight. So uh, Hard Eight was his first film, and it had uh, um, Philip Baker Hall and uh, John C. Riley, Philip Seymour Hoffman's in it, like in like one scene or something. Um, it has uh, Gwyneth Paltrow in it, uh, Sam Jackson's in it. I mean, it has a great cast, and I love that movie. And I used to just give it five stars because I loved it so much, but I've since brought it down, and it's one of my lesser favorites of Paul Thomas Anderson's, but it's only because uh, his uh, filmography is so incredible. Uh, Hard Eight is totally worth watching. However, Boogie Nights is a different beast. It's a different scale. It's much bigger. Um, man, Paul Thomas Anderson grows in this movie. You really see his talent, his vision, his skill. Um, obviously, working with the cinematographer to get these huge crane shots and a lot of these um, steady cam shots. And. Uh, you know, uh, the, the opening of Boogie Nights is a, a pretty iconic kind of production moment with how they uh, how they shoot everything. But it's like a long one take, uh, much like Goodfellas, where they introduce everyone in kind of this long take. Uh, it, it's absolutely brilliant. So anyways, uh, but a, a part of Paul Thomas Anderson's vision, though, you have the soundtrack, which I, I actually own like the vinyl record of because it's awesome. Uh, so go to Spotify or Apple Music or wherever and find the soundtrack to Boogie Nights and just jam it. Because uh, it's awesome. Uh, but the soundtrack really keeps that pacing going. The camera work is incredible. The Robert Altman style ensemble cast is incredible. I mean, this is a showcase of his talent. And, and that's what I usually call Boogie Nights. If Magnolia is his is one of his masterpieces, this is like his showcase. Like, look what I can do. Like Stuart from Mad TV. Look what I can do. Like, that's what this is. All right. This is Paul Thomas Anderson being a fucking badass. And, and the the entire film, I mean, it, you hit all emotions, too. I, if I want to watch a funny movie, like a comedy, I do not put in, I usually don't, I like some of these movies I'm about to mention, but I don't put in Happy Gilmore or a Chris Farley movie. I, again, love those, but I, I don't put those in usually. Um, I don't uh, go to something like The Hangover, Bridesmaids, which I'm not a huge fan of anyways. Uh, I turn to movies like this because... This movie makes me laugh out loud, but also like has more substance for me to kind of uh, experience because I don't really like substance-less things so, uh, generally. So uh, th this movie has it in spades from beginning to end. There's something always going on. But the other thing, my third reason is, uh, is a specific scene. There's a point where the screen cuts to black right after a really dramatic, intense moment. And uh, with Don Cheadle, I'll at least give you that. And uh, and I love donuts. If you know, you know. Anyways, the point is, uh, the third reason is the screen cuts the black and it says long way down. And in parentheses, it says one last thing. And the scene, this is the scene with Alfred Molina. This whole sequence, I'm not, uh, no joke. This is like, just watch this scene if you want. And you'll see this is the, scene that elevates this to great American cinema. I'm not exaggerating. I'm not joking. 
I genuinely think this movie is absolutely outstanding, and this scene is like the the final nail in I almost said coffin like it's dead, but I mean like you know it's like the final kind of it's the cherry on top. It's the one that makes it perfect. And uh, so uh, Tom Jane, John C. Riley, and Mark Wahlberg, all three of their characters are going, and they're basically going to rip off this drug dealer. But they're going there saying that they have drugs, and they want to sell them to him, right? So he can distribute them. Um, and all they want to do is, is sell him the drugs, get the money, and leave. But uh, they're ripping them off because it's like it's like baby formula or something like powdered baby formulas. I forget what it is, but it's it's something not cocaine. So basically, uh, when they walk into this house, there's a huge bodyguard with a gun. Uh, there is this. I want to say that in the movie, Alfred Molina's character says that the boy is Korean, but uh, there is an Asian uh, young man uh, lighting firecrackers and just throwing them, right? So he lights them, holds them for a second, throws it, and it blows up in the air. It's loud, all right? Uh, Alfred Molina's character is the drug dealer. He's super thin. He's wearing a bathrobe and his underwear, uh, and he's snorting coke and drinking drinks, and he's listening to music, Sister Christian, and, and you know, all these other kind of classics, uh, like 80s classics, uh, on his, like, hi-fi system or whatever he has. And, dude, like, the three of the characters that we're following are they're sitting on the couch. All three of them kind of have a different demeanor about them. John C. Riley is absolutely petrified and on edge. Mark Wahlberg is on edge too, but he's like trying to play the role better, right? He's like a, a bit cooler in comparison, but still on edge. And then you have Tom Jane who seems kind of uh, a little off and dude, like every time a firecracker goes off, John C. Riley and, uh, uh, Mark Wahlberg jump, but Alfred Molina never does, not one time, you know, and there's just something about the dynamic between all of these characters in this scene, the way that it shows the gun in the in the robe of the uh, of the bodyguard, because you don't see that right off, but like eventually John C. Riley gets a glimpse of it and he starts to panic. It escalates so perfectly, like the way that the scene kind of almost works its way up like stairs. Uh, man, this is perfect. This is perfect cinema. This scene, uh, I love Boogie Nights. Boogie Nights is in uh, is in in my I so uh, about a decade ago or so. I made my top seventy five favorite films and my top ten. Right, this was number three on my top ten favorite films of all time. That's how much I love this movie. Would it still be there now? I don't know. Maybe I'll have to make a fucking list and see. But it would sure as hell be up there, I'm, I'm sure. Um, this movie's fucking awesome. If you have not seen Boogie Nights or you haven't seen it in a long time, go rewatch it. Heather Graham is fucking awesome. Nicole Parker's awesome. Philip Seymour Hoffman is... as So I think he's incredible in Magnolia, and I love his performance more as a perform like in terms of performance. But in terms of a character actor... This is one of his best characters. He's fucking great. Um, again, Mark Wahlberg's amazing. Julianne Moore is one of the most interesting characters to me. Everything that happens with her character is the best because she's kind of the mama bear of this whole band of misfits, you know. And uh, But she's also kind of like the partner to Burt Reynolds. 
but like he lets her fuck other people. I don't know. The whole th- it's like a polyamorous, almost like free love uh, kind of a situation with them. She's incredible. Don Cheadle is awesome as always and amazing. Um, if you ever wanted to see Don Cheadle act like a cowboy, there is certainly a scene for that as well, which is fun. Uh, John C. Riley is the fucking funniest. William H. Macy is a very sad character, but I love him. He actually makes me laugh in this too. This movie is funny. It's serious. It's emotional. Um, it's tense. It's everything. This is a showcase of one of the best filmmakers we have living today. Definitely go check out Boogie Nights on HBO Max. And that pretty much sums up my five uh, recommendations. Again, if you don't have HBO Max and you've listened this far, bravo. Uh, but there are other ways to watch most of these, okay? So definitely go out of your way to find like these movies. These are just general recommendations as well. Also consider uh, you know, getting HBO Max for a month. And just knock this stuff out. The five picks that I have were You Don't Know Jack, City Lights, Capturing the Freedmans, Beyond the Black Rainbow, and Boogie Nights. Uh, I hope you guys uh, have enjoyed uh, these episodes, you know, where I'm talking about uh, suggestions or like movies that you should see. Um, I've been uh, just really busy. I've been writing music again uh, with things like that, and my schedule has just not been kind of working out with some of our guests and stuff. So thank you so much for, you know, sticking through these solo episodes and, um, uh, I hope that these are fun. And if you watch any of these, and if you watch any of the Netflix ones from last week, please hit me up, Medium Cool Pod, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or email me at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com, and it will definitely get to me, all right? So uh, with that said, I will be right back. You know, these episodes have been really fun, too, for me to kind of look back on these movies and you know think about uh some of the things that i love because i forget about a lot of these and and it was honestly hbo max was so awesome like just looking a to z all the movies they had on there and being reminded i'm talking like just run the gamut on titles man i'm actually super impressed with the hbo max thing if you are a movie lover you should snag this service like i said for a month spend the 15 bucks get one month Set a reminder in your phone for, you know, 28 days, 29 days or whatever, end of the month, and then uh, cancel it, whatever you got to do. But, uh, dude, it's awesome. The other thing, uh, my number one, our most anticipated film of the year when Joe and I did that episode, uh, my number one, Mad God, it's going to release June 18th. It's going to be on Shudder. All right, it's going to be a Shudder original, apparently. This is the stop-motion animation with Phil Tippett, uh, the famous uh, effects guy. This movie's going to be fucking awesome. If you don't remember what I'm talking about, go see the go put in Mad God trailer, either in Google or YouTube. Shit will pop up. You'll find it. Go watch the trailer. It looks amazing. Uh, but I'm really excited about that. I will be covering that on the show. But that said, thank you so much. I love you guys. Good night. Good luck. Take it easy. <laughs>